0: And confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man that I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in the swift flight about him of the evening, about the time of the evening sacrifice. So he's speaking, he's praying, he's confessing his sin. Now I'm not going to take a lot of time to get back into what we talked about last week but why is Daniel doing this? Remember, he's praying three times a day. We finally learn in the last chapter what the content of this earnest prayer is about. He's, he's supplicating in prayer. He's interceding, but why? Can someone summarize last week's talk? Why is he doing this? All right, let me get the mic over here. here you go, Rick. Sorry about that. <coughs>
1: He knows it's getting time for the nation to be restored to their land. Okay. And so he's asking specifically for God's help to get that done, but he knows that they need to repent of all the things that have led to where they're at.
0: That's right. So if you remember last Sunday, we talked about in the law of Moses. It actually prescribes the future of the nation of Israel in the law of Moses. He even said, you know, one day you're going you're gonna to disobey me, and there's going to be all these <laughs> blessings if you obey me. There's going to be all these cursings if you do not obey me. And, and he just he, as he's reading his own Bible, he's reading Jeremiah about the 70 years. He knows it's because of them uh, neglecting the Sabbath years. He knows the reason why they've been in this. And he knows what the Scripture says about how to get out of it. And the Scripture says that when you find yourself in this place, when you finally come to your senses and you wake up in the land that you, where you've been scattered among the, the heathens that you've been scattered to and you're worshiping false gods, it's like, almost like the story of the prodigal son, but in a national aspect, when you finally come to your senses, repent, repent, even where you are. And the promise is, is that I will bring you back. I will remember the covenant that I had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will bring you back. And so he's doing that and he's praying about this. And finally, God gives an answer to a, this prayer, Gabriel. Is this the first time we've seen Gabriel. No, we've seen him once more. In fact, look what it says in verse 21. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man that I had seen in the earlier vision, now stop right there, pause. Is he a man? Gabriel's not a man, but he's described as a man because angels, when they appear, guess what? I hate to break the news to you. They don't have wings, at least not in the traditional sense that we think of them, like a a man standing there with big wings and, you know, he's blonde hair and blue eyed, or I don't know what, you know, (laughs) what picture you've seen or whatever, but, But the picture that we have in Scripture is that they appear like men, like warriors, decked out for battle. Yes, ma'am? He came in swift flight. That's interesting, too. And he's described as a man, but he came in swift flight. Now, there are some angels that are described with wings, like the seraphim in the vision that Daniel has. Remember, it says they actually have six wings, like two to cover and two to cover and two for flight. So there's different kinds of angels, right? This one is, his name is Gabriel. He's the mighty warrior of God. He's the one that fights for Israel, right? He's one of the ones that fights. And every time you see Gabriel, he's delivering an important message. And that's what he's doing here. So it says that while he's in prayer, he sees Gabriel, the man that I had seen in the earlier vision. He came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. That's about three o'clock in the afternoon, by the way. Now, what vision is Daniel talking about? Because so far he hasn't had a vision in Daniel 9. So he's talking about the very last vision that he had right when he saw Gabriel the first time. This is the one that happened back in in Daniel chapter 8. And so he's telling you this is the same angel. This is the same one. And if you go back and you look at that vision, if you remember, this is the vision that happens in Daniel chapter 8 where you have the ram and the goat and the four wings. And you remember you have that that one long notable horn and it breaks off. And then you have that small horn that comes up, right? You guys remember the vision, okay? Um, and it's, it's portraying this picture of the, the final world uh, ruler, this one that you hear called the Antichrist that will rise up at the end of the age. It's, it's talking about those types of things. Oh, keep your finger here. Flip back to Daniel 8 really quick. Look at verse 15. Let's go back to this other vision that Gabriel had given him before. Daniel 8, verse 15. Let's just read it together. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So remember, in the very beginning of chapter 8, he's received this vision. He doesn't understand it. I I don't fault Daniel too much, because honestly, I think if I had seen these things myself for the first time, I'd be having lots of questions too. I know David would. (laughs) Right, So he receives the vision in chapter 8. He doesn't understand it. He gets down to the very end of chapter 8 or to the middle of chapter 8 and he still doesn't understand it. So Gabriel then says, hey, I want you to go tell this guy what this thing means because he doesn't understand it. So look at verse 17, chapter 8. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. I, I would too. He said, son of man, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While I was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And then he touched me and he raised me to my feet. And he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. So Daniel has the vision. He doesn't understand it. He asks about the vision. The angel tries to explain it to him in chapter 8. He doesn't understand. So Daniel's been praying about this vision, right? So now we come into chapter 9 and you see some of what Daniel's been praying about. Because what happens is God shows him so much grace, he sends Gabriel back again (laughs) to Daniel to once again try to bring some clarity to this vision that he had earlier in chapter 8. Okay, All right, so let's get back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 22. And y'all, please forgive me. My, my um, My voice is scratchy this morning, so I'm having to kind of throw it out there. And I'm hoping to save some for the sermon a little bit later. All right, read with with me verse 22. So he instructed me and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. I wonder if Daniel's probably thinking, finally. I've been praying about this for weeks, man. I'm finally going to be able to understand. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Now, can you just stop right there? Could you imagine having a heavenly being? Look at you and tell you that you're highly esteemed. I love that. And in fact, he's going to be called, he's going to make a reference to Daniel. He's going to call him the friend of God. He's going to be called the friend of God. Man, wouldn't that be great to be known as the friend of God? I don't know. I just, I I like that. Just kind of a quick pause. So as soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I've come to tell you about. For you are highly esteemed, highly favored. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now what's going to happen is the angel Gabriel is going to give Daniel a prophecy about the future of the nation of Israel. And this time it's not going to be a 70 years prophecy. It's going to be a 70 weeks prophecy. And this prophecy is going to look forward to two of the most important events that are going to take place in the life of the nation of Israel. The first one is going to be the first coming of their Messiah whom you and I know as Jesus Christ. And the prophecy is going to finish in scope by looking at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's the, the, the whole entire scope. Now, it's interesting. Um, well, I'm going to skip that. Okay, so at this point, let's go ahead and get into this. Um, this is probably, in my, in my opinion, this is the most important prophecy of all of Daniel. Jesus, when he's on the Mount of Olives, after coming out of the temple... His disciples are marveling and they're looking at the temple structure and they're saying, wow, what an amazing, you know, Pilate spent like 40 years building this thing or whatever and rebuilding it, making it look nice and trying to rival the the splendor of Solomon when he built his temple. And Jesus uh, very nonchalantly looks at these guys and says, you know what, don't really pay no attention to it. Not one stone's going to be left upon another soon. And that just kind of freaked them out. So they go across the Kidron Valley over back to the the Mount of Olives. And and the Bible says that there were four disciples, four, that came along and said, you know what, we want to hear more about what you just talked about. And so they come with a private meeting to get some inside information about what they now associate with the last days. And they said, when are these things going to happen? What's going to be the sign of your coming? How are we going to know that what you said is about to come to pass? And Jesus starts just laying out some information says there's going to be some signs that will lead up to that time. And he gets all the way to this one point. And he says, but there's one thing that happens. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And then there's a parenthetical statement in Matthew where it says, let the reader understand. That's Matthew 24, 15. You know what that means? That means Matthew, by way of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, is telling you that in order for you to understand what Jesus is really talking about, you've got to go back and you've got to master the book of Daniel. See, these are Jews. They know their Bibles. They know Matthew chapter, uh, they know, uh, excuse me, Daniel chapter 9. They know Daniel chapter 8. They know Daniel chapter 12. They know 9, 10, and 11. They know every one of these chapters like the back of their hands. So it behooves us, as students of Jesus Christ... Especially when it talks about this topic of the last days to go back and find out what he wanted us to know, right? Again, Matthew 24, 15, let the reader understand. That's what you and I are trying to do this morning. Amen? <laughs> so, this prophecy starts in chapter 9. But remember, you can read 9 and 11 and 12 together because they all happen in the first year of Darius. In fact, I would encourage you when you study chapter 9, Read 9, 11, and 12 in chronological order because they all happen in the same year, probably right contiguous with one another. Daniel chapters 11 and 12 is honestly further commentary on the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, okay? All right. So, um, let's see. <clears throat> all right, here's what I want you to do. If you you like to mark in your Bibles, take out your pen or pencil And I want you to write down verse 24 of of, uh, Daniel 9. Verse 24 is the scope of the prophecy. The scope of the prophecy. In other words, it's, it's going to tell you where it starts and where it ends. And when it ends, here's what it's going to look like. That's the entire scope of the prophecy. That's verse 24. Verse 25 is going to tell you the main thrust of the prophecy, which is the 69 weeks. The 69 weeks. Verse 25. Verse 26, there is an interval. In this prophecy, the final seven years out of this entire count that we're going to have is split off from the rest. In other words, there is an event that causes the clock to stop and there will be an event that will cause the clock to start. There is an interval here and there are some events that are described in this interval. And we'll talk about those here in just a moment. And then finally, verse 27 describes the 70th week the 70th week okay let's get into it first verse 24 the scope of the prophecy verse 24 70 are decreed for your people and for your holy city now i'm just going to do this old school bible study way we're going to break it down verse by verse word by word are we all okay with that so it's kind of old school but it's the way i was trained and i like to study that way The first thing we need to discuss is this thing called the 77s. In Hebrew, it's the Shebuim. You guys understand that on the Hebrew calendar and on the Hebrew clock, everything is arranged by sevens, right? They love the number seven. God loves the number seven. Um, There is, for example, a week of days. Every six days on a Jewish calendar, there was something special that happened. What was it? On the seventh day, there was a Sabbath day. You are to keep the Sabbath day. Keep it holy, he said, right? Well, guess what? Every six weeks there was also what's known as a Sabbath week. One of the seven festivals of Israel that happened every year was something called the Feast of Weeks. It was called the Feast of the Shebuim, right? Um, And that was held from Nisan to Tishri, a period of seven months. Then there was also, also what was called sabbatical years for the land. Every six years... There was something special that was to happen on that seventh year. What was it? The Shemitah year, right? Now we have us, us uh, Gentile Christians have only just now over the last few years even started even having conversations about the Shemitah year because of people like Jonathan Kahn and some of these others. Yes, Pam. Uh huh. There's a week of days. There's a week of weeks, okay, called the Feast of Weeks. There's a week of months, all right, and there's a week of years, and that's what we're talking about right now, the week of years. Every six years was a Sabbath year, and that's called a Shemitah, a Shemitah, okay? Now, there was one more count on the Hebrew calendar. Every six years, you had a Sabbath year, but if you times that by seven, seven Shebuas. Seven times seven, it brought you to 49 years. There was something really, really, really special that happened on the 50th year. Anybody know? The year of Jubilee, which was the year that was kind of like a reset, right? Everything was put right back where it was. All your debts are now gone. If you were a slave, you're now free. Everything goes back to the way it was, and you start all over again, right? Okay, I bring all that up because, if you remember, it was Israel's failure to keep the Sabbath years for a period of 490 years that precipitated them being put into Babylon in captivity for 70 years. Remember, God spoke and said at least in two places that the reason why I'm doing this is because you went 490 years without keeping the Sabbath year. So the way I figure, you owe me 70. And so God got His 70 out of the nation of Israel, right? He let the land go fallow for 70 years. Well, here again... We're going to be dealing with a period of 70, but this time in Hebrew it says the 70 Shebuims, the 70 weeks. Weeks of what? These are weeks of years. These are weeks of years, prophetic years, okay? These are prophetic years. So 70 times 7, I'm not good at math. I did, I did horrible at math. I was pretty good at reading the Bible in college, but math I stink at. What's 70 times 7? 49. So we're talking about a period of how many years? Again... 490 years. It's interesting, when you go through the Bible, I'm not going to take the time to do this right now, but God typically deals with Israel in intervals of 490 years. I don't know why that is. But you can go back in the Old Testament, and you can find four distinct periods of 490 years. Now, there are time periods where they're off into captivity. But what's interesting is, is, is if you shave off the years they were in captivity, God deals with them directly for 490 years. But anyway, that's another story. Now, These are 490 years. Now, what is going to happen in this time period of 490 years? Something very specific, he says, 70 Shebuim, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. So, who are we talking about? We're talking about Jerusalem and the Jews. Are we talking about the Gentile church in America? No. No. Prophecy does not pertain to us. Now, will it affect us? I believe that it absolutely is going to affect us, okay? And it, and it should affect us today with how we treat Jewish people, by the way. Um, but that's a, that's a topic for another day. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But this is specifically going to be about Jerusalem, and it's going to be about the Jewish people. Now, look at verse 24. Here's, the, here's what's going to happen. The whole scope is going to happen. There's going to be six things that will take place by the time this prophecy is completely fulfilled. Here they are. To finish, riot, or to finish transgression... To put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, as with all prophecy, as with anything you get into with last days, book of Revelation, you name it, there's a lot of debate about what does this mean versus what does that mean. Um, I'm a very biased teacher I'm like any other teacher feels like I have arrived at some truth and I want to share that truth. But there are times when I'm not as certain. I will share alternatives with you. I don't think this is one of those, but I'll tell you that most people will tell you, especially if they do not believe um, that there will be a future, a coming Antichrist. If they don't believe there'll be a future millennium, I hold to those two things. I believe that there will be both. Um, But if you come from a more amillennial perspective or Uh, even some of these other perspectives, they will say that, well, these things have already happened, see, this has already happened because the finish, the transgression, put an end to sin. See, Jesus, he did that on the cross, you see, and I understand that interpretation and I get it except for the fact that the entire bent of this prophecy is pointing toward the second return of Christ and the destruction of the one known as the little horn that we've already read about in Daniel chapter 8 because Daniel chapter 8 and 9 are completely tied together and I'm going to show you how here in just a moment. But I don't think it's talking about that at all. In fact, here's what I think he's talking about. The transgression that's going to be brought to an end, the sin that's going to be brought to an end, is this constant wandering of the Jewish people that's happened over the last several thousand years. That's what's going to be brought to an end. They're going to stop wandering around, and they're going to stop whoring after other nations and whoring after other gods. If you look at the entire story of Scripture, that's the story of Scripture. To atone for wickedness, did Jesus do that? Yes, He did. But we're not talking about that here. We're talking about Israel. We're talking about the Jews. We're talking about atoning for wickedness, nationally speaking. Did you know there's a day coming where the Bible says that I will forgive their iniquity in one day? In one day. He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about the day when they petition Christ as their Messiah to return for them. And if you've never heard some of these things, I know that sounds a little bit strange, but I promise as we go, it's going to make a lot more sense. To seal up vision and prophecy. Now stop right there. That's a pretty easy one. Has all prophecy been fulfilled and sealed up yet? See, this is where we kind of stop and go, well, wait a minute. That one for sure is not done yet. See, this prophecy here in Daniel's uh, 70 weeks is not fulfilled absolutely as of yet. Okay, keep going. So you can argue, I think, that some of these things are at least partially fulfilled on the cross, but they're not completely fulfilled. And the point that I want to make here is that the the scope of this prophecy, it's very large, it's very definitive. When will these happen? It says when these things occur, all of those things will be brought to an end. Remember, this is connected to to some of the other things that we've talked about in Daniel so far. What are some of the things that the some of the prophecies in Daniel, chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12 that we've already looked at? What do they anticipate is going to happen? The Messiah is going to return. He's going to bring judgment upon all the enemies of the nations of Israel. All the nations of Israel are going to come against uh, Jerusalem to fight against her. God will step in at some uh, very important spot. It will be at a a moment when God has allowed them to collectively come to understand that Jesus, Yeshua, was the Messiah. That they, in fact, crucified Him 2,000 years ago. It will bring a place of national repentance. That's the key. You remember that passage in Jeremiah where it says, "...if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent?" It's talking actually prophetically about that last generation that will come to their senses and realize that Jesus Yeshua was the Messiah all along. Zechariah chapter 12 says, "...they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will wail as if someone lost their only son." So this, it says these things are going to happen, and at that moment it says the Messiah Jesus will return. He will defeat this Antichrist person. He will set up His throne in Jerusalem. All of the wicked will be judged. It says that He will sit on His Father's throne. He will rule and reign from Jerusalem on the earth. And I love this. It says the law of God will flow like rivers that will heal the nations, It will flow from Jerusalem to the rest of the entire world. I love this. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, As the waters cover the sea. So, one of the things that we have to remember, guys, when we're reading this, is that Daniel chapter 9 is connected to the much larger book of Daniel and the much larger expectations of all the prophetic books Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. All of them have a theology that these expectations that they have in their mind that they're bringing to the text when they write these things. I want you to turn in your uh, Bibles to Daniel chapter 12 with me. Daniel chapter 12. We're going to jump ahead just a little bit. Read this. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. What is that called? That's resurrection right there, guys. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. And then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. And one of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be for these astonishing things are fulfilled? And the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and a half of time. When the power of the holy people, listen to this, guys, when the power of the holy people has finally been broken. All these things will be completed. Isn't it interesting how many times in the Bible you see this time, time and a half a time? Three and a half years, 42 months, as it's talked about in the book of Revelation. What does it all go back to? The Bible has said from the very beginning, the prophetic works all say this that there's coming a time, and this is God speaking to his people, the Jews. This is not Tim Brown. There's no anti Semitism here whatsoever. But God Himself has said many times that the Jews are a stiff-necked people. The ones that I've tried to have a relationship with, they constantly run away from me. They constantly um, cheat on me with other women, is the idea in the the Scriptures. And He says, there's a day coming all throughout the prophetic books where I'm going to drive them to the very end of their strength. And finally, they will turn to me. Where does that language come from? It actually goes back to the Old Testament law all over again. Deuteronomy chapter 32, there's this thing called the Song of Moses, and it says that in the last days God will bring Israel to the very end of her strength, and it will be in that place of brokenness that Israel will then um, repent and petition Jesus for return. Look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Turn over there with me, really quick. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. You say, how in the world is the entire nation of Israel going to repent and come to Jesus? There's the answer right there. See, It's God's prerogative to do with His people whatever He wants to do with His people. Amen? And there's a day coming when it says He's going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. Praise God for that and supplication they will look upon me the one that they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son i want you turn over to ezekiel 36 with me i know we're flipping but we're picking up a few important verses here ezekiel 36 16 through 38 i'll read this one <clears throat> "'Again the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man. "'When the people of Israel were living in their own land, "'they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. "'Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanliness in my sight. "'So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land "'and because they had defiled it with their idols. "'I dispersed them among the nations, "'and they were scattered through the countries. "'I judged them according to their conduct and their their actions.' and wherever they went among the nations they profaned my holy name for it was said of them these are god's people these are the lord's people and they have yet to leave and and yet they had to leave his land by the way isn't that true that's what's been said about the jews and mocked about the jews for the last 2000 years so called god's people they're not even their own land well now they are been there since 1948 i had concern listen to this listen to this verse 21 i had concern For my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone, therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name that you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Pause right there. You say, Tim, isn't that the verse you always quote about the new covenant? Yes, it is. In Christ, through faith, by the Spirit, I get to participate in a covenant now that they have yet to even experience because they have not accepted their Messiah yet. Isn't that amazing? But that's their covenant. That was not made with Gentiles, Tim Tim Brown, in 21st century America. That was made with the Jewish people. And because of what Jesus did, that covenant still stands. Amen? And I get to participate in it by faith. Keep going. Verse 29, I will save you from all of your uncleanliness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field. This is after Jesus comes back, guys. This is talking about the millennium. This is talking about where Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. Listen to what it says. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. And then you will remember your evil and wicked deeds and your ways, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraceful for your conduct, people of Israel. Then I'm going to close here. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day that I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I love that part. Yeah, go ahead.
1: I'd like to point out a couple of things. First of all, prophecy throughout Scripture many times is more than double entendre, a triple, quadruple, whatever, that's right. That's right. because it happens again and again and again and again. Now, when you're speaking specifically about Israel, I think the thing that we need to remember is that even if he gives them a thousand years with all these blessings on the earth, yeah. that's not the end of the story, folks. I mean, Jesus died so that his people could be with God yeah. and live with him forever. So, there's no need in us getting hung up on the actual specific uh, meaning of these things. Thinking that well, if I don't understand this, you know, there's something wrong with me. Right? Because it is true, and and that's the last point I want to make is that his name is El Shaddai. El Shaddai means God makes a promise that He can never break. That's right. He always fulfills His word. So if He says it one time. Anywhere in Scripture is going to be fulfilled either in the time that we're looking at or in the future. But the point is El Shaddai. God's Mm. Word never fails. It always comes true. Now, whether we understand the specifics and how everything goes together, I'm still wrestling with this idea of the third temple. What purpose does it serve? Right. Jesus has already been sacrificed There are no more sacrifices to be given. The priesthood is us, not some lineage from Aaron. And I understand all of that. But if God wants to do it that way, that's his plan, not mine. So that would be fine. But my point is heaven and Christ are the summation of all of this.
0: Good, good, very good. All right, I want to read one more passage of Scripture from Romans 11, and then we're going to stop there before we get back into the text next week. Romans 11, Paul is, um, Paul is wrestling with all of this stuff, too, because he's trying to speak to a Gentile audience, much like us, who has not been raised with a lot of these understandings and, and understanding the way of the, how the Jews kind of see how things are supposed to kind of play out or how it's been laid out in the, in the law. And he's talking to the church in Rome. Rome is mostly a Gentile church by this point. There's a small little minority of Jewish people there. And he's trying to, to deal with some of the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. But he brings up some very interesting theology along the way. And this is exactly what we've been talking about. And this ties in directly with Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks prophecy. So let's read it together really quick before the next bell. Romans chapter 11. And uh, we're going to start at verse 1. He says, I asked then... Did God reject His people? Now, he's talking about the Jewish people. Did God reject His people? Paul says, by no means. I'm an Israelite myself. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? He said, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. And what was God's answer to him? Well, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, in what time? Paul's time. Okay? In Paul's time. He says, so, too, in the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. He says, you ain't got to worry about this thing. So the question is, why in the world, if, if Jesus really is the, the actual Messiah, why did such a small minority of his people accept him as such? Not a bad question to ask. I mean, at least from a from a from a, a, a practical standpoint, it's a little suspicious, right? But listen to what Paul says. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based upon works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought to so earnestly sought so earnestly they, they, they did not obtain. Well, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, to this very day. And David, he says, he's quoting David, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Do you realize that one of the purposes that God has allowed the Spirit of grace to go from the Jews to the Gentiles is so that by the Spirit you can start living such a Torah lifestyle that your Jewish neighbors look at you and go, Oy vey! They don't even go to synagogue and they act like a good Jew, right? You understand what I'm saying? It's what Paul was saying in in, in Romans chapter 2. These people have the Spirit of God and they do by nature things that they've been learning in synagogue with Torah for decades. We're supposed to be living our lives in such a way that the Jews become jealous of us. That's exactly what Paul just said. All right, listen. Verse 12, but if their transgressions means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will be their full inclusion? See what he's talking about there? He's hinting at what will happen in the book of Zechariah on that day when they finally petition Messiah to return. And he says I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles take pride I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world what will their acceptance be but life from the dead if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy then the whole bunch is holy if the root is holy then so are the branches And I could go on and on, but I'm going to let you finish out reading the rest of Romans chapter 11. But basically, he tells you it's a a mystery. I want you to skip down to verse 25, and I will say this. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel, the nation, has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. You know what that means? That I means God's got a number in His mind. Now, I don't know that number, and you don't know that number. But it is not up to us to know the number. It's up to us to get to the work and to make the numbers increase. Amen? But there's a full number of the Gentiles that are supposed to come in. And when that number is reached, ladies and gentlemen, I personally believe that that is when the final seven years Shemitah begins. He will turn his attention back to the Jews one more time, and he'll say, all right, boys time to wrap up everything we promised a long time ago. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. God bless you.